0: Ecclesiastes five one through seven Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear." This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Happy New Year to you. Um, We live over here by City Park. After all I heard last night, I think this is an extremely good crowd. (laughs) We heard gunshots going off at 312. So anyhow, Happy New Year to you all. I'm glad you're here. Um, This is going to be a fun sermon, I think. I've been waiting all week to to preach this. Um, I, I... I just want to start by asking you the why question for this particular sermon. Um, What will 2017 have in store for you? As Christians, I think our most immediate response is, well, we don't know what our lives are going to be like tomorrow, which is true. But it immediately kind of throws you into kind of a practical tension because most of us realize that any positive change in our lives will not happen by accident. You're going to have to be intentional, you're going to have to be intelligent, you're going to have to use strategic planning, resources, uh, or it's not going to happen. So when you begin to think about, all right, what am I going to do this year, automatically you have to consider this idea of what resolutions are. Forbes magazine recently reported that four out of ten Americans will make some sort of a resolution. I think most of us know that's probably really low. Um, I, I think all of us, to some degree or another, when we, when we take a step back and ask yourself, okay, was 2016 a good year or was it a bad year? I'm telling you, it, the answers to the, that question going through your minds right now, whether you're here or watching online, They are spectacularly wide-ranged. I know there's some people in our congregation, like James and Megan, who are still trying to have a baby here this morning. Um, They would say 2016 was probably the best year of their lives. And I know there's some of you here that would say 2016 couldn't go away quick enough. It seems, even online as I read a lot of the articles this week, it seems like the consensus tends to be that when we look back, we tend to... find fault with a lot of stuff. And so uh, I I think when when it comes to making these these formal types of resolutions, it's probably way higher than 40%. Now the surprising part of Forbes research is they also said only 8% of the people that make formal resolutions keep them. Only 8%. I think when you begin to step back and to say, okay, what does the Bible actually say about making promises or making resolutions or vows, I I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any place in the Scripture that's quite as succinct as what Solomon wrote in these verses from Ecclesiastes 5. Um, What may be surprising to some of you is that, that research is starting to confirm what he says here. Contemporary research in modern neuroscience is beginning to uncover what makes the difference between a successful promise and an unsuccessful one. And with only 8% of us fulfilling our, our, reaching our goals or fulfilling our promises, I think this really merits a few moments of kind of intense consideration. I, I think what we find here in this text taken from Ecclesiastes 5 are three really crucial pieces of instruction regarding our promises or resolutions. The first is you need to take your time. The second is that you need to assess your situation as carefully as you possibly can. And third, you just need to be resolute. Those three things seem really simple, but they're instrumental to being able to satisfy or fulfill your goals. So this first point, in taking your time, I I actually think that when you look carefully at verses 1 and 2, you could also title this, Don't Panic. And there's a lot that's said here, but... I, I think it's resonating with a deep sense of a need for change that he's speaking to. In other words, before we make a vow, before we make a promise, deep within our thinking, there's an awareness that w- could push us to panic. It could push us to kind of lunge at an easy easy answer. So in verses 1 and 2, you're, we're actually being introduced to one of the greatest hindrances Um, to progress, I think, in all of our lives. Many of you know that I've been a counselor for 25 years, and I've been life coaching and even training life coaches for the last eight. And I can tell you that this is one of the biggest problems that people have when they come to me. And they're able to say, okay, we want to do this as a family. I want to do this in my business. I want to do this vocationally or academically or even health-wise. This is one of the biggest problems that you run into because... Being rash or hasty can doom your promises before they ever get started. And I think that's what we have kind of in the mix here. The the phrase being rash with your mouth refers to the idea of uh, just blurting out plans more out of a sense of haste, a sense of fear. In other words, many of us make our most substantial promises about what we don't want. We, we see some, some parent mistreat uh, his or her child. We see a spouse that's living in a very, a very bad marriage. And we typically promise ourselves, I'll never be that. I'll never allow myself to be like that. And he's talking about the kinds of pledges or the kind of resolutions that emerge from this sense of fear. Now, the phrase, nor be hasty, um, nor in your heart, let your heart be hasty, carries the idea of allowing your affections to just kind of jump out hastily on some uh, idea of relief or some idea desired outcome that you might set your heart on. And so, this first point is really just dealing with being able to slow yourself down enough to say, "Okay, what should I really do?" Not just reacting in out of panic to the situation but just taking your time to make sure that you're seeing the situation as accurately as you can. Now, I think Solomon is speaking deeply to one of our culture's greatest weaknesses because what has happened in our culture, particularly over the last couple of decades, is that we've become so self-obsessed that we don't tend to take in the data or the data around us very well. And there's a lot of research beginning to confirm this, is that What's happening is our self-absorption is shutting down our empirical awareness. Now, there was a very, very interesting study done. Um, it was published through the Harvard Business Review for the first time in 1957. It was recently just republished, and it was, the, the title of the article was um, Listening to People. And it describes and provides research for the, just how difficult this really is and the research was originally done at the University of Minnesota, but since 1957, this research has been corroborated just numerous, numerous times. And so this is a kind of a well-established fact in science, that they, what they found is that the average listener will only remember about 25% of what is said. And so when you engage a person at work, when you engage your son when he comes home from school, on the average, you only take away one part out of every four. Now, that's interesting. Now, um, they concluded that our listening has been compromised to a large degree by this huge differential between the average rate of speech, that's about 125 words per minute, unless you're my wife. Then it could go considerably higher than that, but the average pace is 125. Um, But there's a huge differential between that average speaking rate and the words that your mind thinks. Now, this is really interesting research as it pertains to this point, because that differential is is so big that it's very difficult to just slow down and keep yourself in the moment. Now, a lot of millennials call this like being present. It's all resonating or all talking to the same thing. Listen to this quote. It says, it might seem logical to slow down our thinking when we listen so as to coincide with the 125 word per minute speech rate but slowing down thought processes seems to be a very difficult thing to do when we listen therefore we continue thinking at a high speed while the spoken words arrive at a low speed at the act in in the act of listening the differential between thinking and speaking rates means that our brain works hundreds of words in addition works with hundreds of words in addition to those that we hear, assembling thoughts other than those spoken to us. To phrase it another way, we can listen and still have some spare time for thinking. The use or misuse of this spare thinking time holds the answer to how well a person can concentrate on the spoken word. So basically what they're telling you is this, that when you're listening to someone speak at a normal rate of 125 words per minute, your brain is filling out, completing a narrative that isn't even in the conversation. Now, this is what makes one of Brene Brown's points in Rising Strong so interesting, because she she proposes in the very onset, very early parts of her book, that every once in a while, you stop and you ask a person close to you, tell me the story that you're telling yourself. Now, I've been a counselor, I've done over 25,000 hours of counseling, And I have, in 25 years, I've never found a phrase that's quite like that phrase. I've used it countless times. I read the book over the summer. um, And I've used that countless times in my sessions. Some of you can even recall when I've asked you that. And what's so interesting about that that question is that it gets at this counter-narrative. It gets at the fact that your mind hates incoherence. It hates a lack of symmetry and so what happens is your mind is racing and its creating a narrative that may be entirely inconsistent with the situation and frighteningly it is a narrative that typically is just reinforcing your preconceived bias and so Solomon 900 years 930 years BC is writing this text and saying do you want to make better decisions do you want to make better promises if you do you're going to have to slow down. You're going to have to really slow yourself down or you don't even know for sure what you're dealing with. Now, that brings us to the second point that in verse 6 we find that you need to assess the situation carefully. Now, there's a triad with these, all three of these. I personally think the third point is the most significant. But this assessing the situation carefully, is, is it goes right along with the first point. Any successful strategy that can actually avoid negative outcomes starts with an accurate assessment of your current circumstances. And there are, in verse 6, we find two really important points that pertain to making decisions. First, he creates a scenario in which that he shows you that there's on occasion the necessity of avoiding a situation that you've taken action only to realize that it was a complete mistake. He poses the question, why do you want to say that to the messenger? Now, our minds have a little bit of construction to do there as opposed to a thousand years, three thousand years ago now, a thousand years B.C. But he's basically saying, when the king sends for you, do you really just want to confess it was a mistake? Now, the second thing that we find here is this accountability. He said, why Why should God destroy the work of your hands? And he's saying, when you make these decisions, you have an accountability before other people, but most importantly, before God. Now, I, I personally think that any worthwhile wedding ceremony usually would cause the person officiating to be able to say, We are gathered today in the presence of these witnesses, but in the sight of God. And it's because of this. It's because of this. <clears throat> So one of the most common mistakes that we make in developing a strategy for positive progress to move forward is that we don't thoroughly consider our options. Now, in, way back in 1738, there was a Dutch mathematician named Daniel Bernoulli who articulated a decision-making equation that's actually really popular, even today. And this is what he said. He said, the expected value of any of our actions, that is, the goodness that we can count on getting, is the product of two simple things. The odds that this action will allow us to gain something and the value of that gain to us. So what he's basically saying is that before you can have the motivation to make a change, two things happen in your mind. You're thinking, okay, how valuable, how likely is the situation to change? And how valuable is that change to me? Now, that makes a lot of sense if you step back and think about it. But it's not as easy as you think. Calculating odds of success and the value of gain is relatively simple when it comes to some things. We all know that there's two sides to a coin. We all know that there's 52 cards in a deck. We we know those things. And so calculating the odds or the likelihood of success is sometimes really easy. And sometimes we do it all the time. But in more difficult situations, it's not not easy to assess those two things. Now, Dan Gilbert is a professor of psychology at Harvard. Excuse me. (coughs) (coughs) He's a professor um, of psychology at Harvard. He believes that our ability to accurately assess the odds of our success is greatly diminished by the quickness with with which some things come into our mind. In other words, when you ask yourself, okay, how likely am I to be able to get this done? How likely am I going to be able to lose 25 pounds? How likely am I to be able to get married next year? How likely am I to get, you know, this promotion at work? How likely am I, you know, to move to California? You know, when you ask yourself those questions, your mind, just like the previous point that I told you, your mind starts rapidly filling in the narrative for you, and it causes mistakes. Now, this is what Gilbert said. And he uses this really simple example to prove it to you. He said, are there more four-letter English words with R in the third place or R in the first place? Well, you check memory very briefly, you make a quick scan, and it's awfully easy to say to yourself ring, rang, rung, and very hard to say to yourself pair or part. They come, they come more slowly. But in fact, there are many more words in the English language with R in the third than the first place. The, reasons are, the reason words with R in the third place come slowly to your mind isn't because they're improbable and likely or infrequent. It's because the mind recalls words by their first letter. You kind of shout out the sound S and the word comes. It's like the dictionary. It's hard to look up things by the third letter. So this is an example of how this idea that the quickness with which things come to mind can give you a sense of their probability. That is an amazingly simple example. Simple question, and it proves to you that you're you're most probably gonna get the wrong answer. And so in easy situations, we can seek a little counsel, we can ask around, we can kinda go with our gut like some people do. But the chances are you're going to miss it. If you don't take the time to assess the situation carefully, you're going to miss it. So in essence, Gilbert has proven that unless we are more deliberate about identifying our options, we tend to overestimate the likelihood of our success. As simple as that sounds, it is the essence of the instruction that Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 5. Um, it's also found throughout the book of Proverbs, which Solomon wrote the majority of. Consider how these two verses from Proverbs speak to the same tendency. They're almost paired with the the verses out of uh, Ecclesiastes 5. In Proverbs 19 and verse 2, it says, Desire without knowledge is not good, and whoever uh, whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. He says, so when you really want something and you don't know very much about it, That's not a very good thing. And if you hastily move, you're not going to find the right way. In Proverbs 29.20, it says this. He said, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than him. Now, the backdrop to that is that there's there's kind of a myriad of terms that are used for folly or foolishness throughout the book of Proverbs. But the most basic one simply means to be morally deficient. You just don't know any better. And he's saying that a person here, a person that is hasty to make promises or vows, it'd be better off if he was morally deficient. That's gonna leave you less likely to succeed than a person who doesn't know what he or she is doing. So if you're going to make, if you're going to develop intelligent strategies for positive change in your life during 2017, you're going to have to be intentional about slowing yourself down and carefully assessing the circumstances of your life rather than impulsively lunging at the first option that comes to your mind. I can tell you as a coach that, that one of the most common things I see is that when you ask a person, okay, give me an option for change in this situation, somewhere around 80% of you only find one up. You just You kind of develop and think about one option, and you 80% of the time you'll go with the first option. And so to have someone slow you down to say, I'm not going to let you make a choice until you give me three options, it, that process in itself renders a person a lot, a lot more likely to succeed. Now, this brings us to what I said earlier is probably the most important of this triad. And this third point is simply, you're going to have to be resolute. You're going to have to be resolute. In verses 4 and 5, we find this last principle regarding the making of effective and sustainable resolutions is actually being steadfast, just sticking with it. Essentially, Solomon is saying what I learned in a parenting program back in 1991 that basically told parents, it just simply said, say what you mean and mean what you say. That's kind of what Solomon is saying. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Now, that in and of itself is revolutionary for a lot of parents. If you have, if you have a, a, a child that's increasingly becoming non-compliant, you probably can hear yourself threatening a lot, far more than you realize. And that's the reason that same child can be put into the presence of you know, family or friends, and they say, your little child is an angel, and you think someone traded your child. And it's because we oftentimes don't think like that. We don't say what we mean, they mean what we say. Now, University of Pennsylvania psychologist Angela Lee Duckworth conducted research studies at West Point Military Academy to predict which cadets would stay in the military and which would drop out. She also conducted studies amongst the participating students in the National Spelling Bee and tried to predict which children would advance furthest in the competition. And then lastly, she partnered with a number of private companies to predict which salespeople would keep their jobs and who would be the most successful. And this is the conclusion of her research. This is amazing. She said this, and she said, in all those very different contexts, one characteristic emerged as as a significant predictor of success, and it wasn't social intelligence, it wasn't good looks, physical health, and it wasn't IQ. It was grit. Now, she goes on and defines grit this way. Grit is passion and perseverance, for very long-term goals. Grit is having stamina. Grit is sticking with your future day in, day out, not just for the week, not just for the month, but for years and working really hard to make that future a reality. Grit is living life like it's a marathon, not a sprint. I want you to stop right there for a moment. What is she saying? How would one of you condense what she just said? What is grit? Pardon me? Okay, so it's sustaining. It's sustaining. I think that, that it is. That's for sure on the surface of what she's saying. But when she says these are long-term goals, I think we can find that oftentimes there is even outright contradiction in some of the things we vow to do. We don't have much of a, much alignment oftentimes. We promise to do this. We promise to do that. And oftentimes there can be a, a, a dissidence between those two promises or even outright contradiction. But she's saying grit is really something that emerges from a person when she absolutely refuses to give up. Nothing can stop her. And she said in all of her research, these were the people that were the most successful. It wasn't the smartest. It wasn't the most talented. It wasn't the people with the most money. It wasn't the, most, the best looking. It was people that just refused to quit. Now, in the midst of her, her TED Talks in, my, in the sermon notes, in the midst of her TED talk, she asked herself the question, so how do we teach grit? And she just admitted, she said, I don't know. She said, I really don't know. And after all of her research, this is what she said. She said, when asked about how to build grit, she candidly admits that she doesn't really know, but she offers this insight, which I think is really helpful. She said, what I do know is that talent does not make you gritty. Our data show very clearly that there are many talented individuals who simply do not follow through on their commitments. In fact, in our data, grit is usually unrelated or even inversely related to measures of talent. What she's saying there is that sometimes if you're talented, you probably have never had to work hard. That's what it means to be inversely related. Now she goes on and says this. She said, so far, the best idea I've heard about building grit in kids is something called growth mindset. This is an idea developed at Stanford University by Carol DeWick, Uh, And it is the belief that the ability to learn is not fixed. That it can change with your effort. Dr. Dweck has shown that when kids read and learn about the brain and how it changes and grows in response to challenge, they're much more likely to persevere when they fail because they don't believe that failure is a permanent condition. That last sentence is really important. You see, there's something along the way that causes us to think that failure is a permanent condition. And what that looks like is a person who, when you ask her what she wants to do, it, it's almost immediate, immediately collided with a, a negative outcome. She's able to say, well, I've never been able to do things like that. I've never been able to get to the weight I want. I've never been able to run a marathon. Or I've never been able to get the, the promotion or get straight A's at school. But she says something changes in the human mind when you realize that's not permanent. You can actually change. Now, grit comes from you believing that it's not a permanent condition. So your ability to stick with your resolutions is the greatest predictor of your success, of all of them. It's more important than your physical health. It's more important than your resources, the amount of money you have at your disposal. It's even more important than your intelligence and your IQ. If you want to make positive progress in 2017, you're going to have to be resolute in your resolutions. So if you truly want to make the most out of your life in 2017, if you want to be sitting here next year and to be able to say, my 2017 was like James Rathman's 2016, which is pretty good, you're going to have to do something about it. You're going to have to slow yourself down. You're going to have to carefully assess the circumstances to make sure that you're seeing them as they really are, and you are going to have to be resolute or it's not going to happen. So interesting set of verses for sure. Most succinct instruction on prom- making promises in the whole entire Bible. All right, let's take a couple of questions and I'll be done. What if I'm super cautious, over-analytical person who doesn't make any resolutions or vows because I know I won't do them? What should my first step be? I don't, that sounds as if I wrote that. <laughs> um, I'm super cautious, I'm not risk adverse though. Um, some of you know that I used to be on the board of directors for Acts 29 and Mark Driscoll, I used to really like spending time with Mark Driscoll. And part of the reason was is that he was so aggressive, he was so progressive in the way that he pursued excellence, that he raised everybody's vote, so to speak. But he, ha- he used to have this process that I think ended up factoring into his collapse at the end because he used, to call, he used to create what some people called strategic chaos. He broke things down on purpose because deep inside of his heart and the majority of the team that he has assembled as well, that not only were they not risk adverse, they were risk optimistic. In other words, they believed that if they broke your system down when they put it back together, it was going to be twice as good as it was before. And so he was relentless in breaking stuff up. And a person who comes to a point that's saying, well, I'm so analytical, I tend to think of things so strategically and so in their composite that I actually realize that I've, I'm super cautious and I don't make these resolutions because I know I'm never going to fulfill them. That, is prob- that mindset is probably dooming your promise before you make it. I'd venture to say that you're going to have to be able to step back and create a strategy that you actually have confidence in and be willing, willing to fail. See, some of us are afraid to fail. But what you just heard in that research from Duckworth is, and particularly from Stanford, from Dweck, is that it's kids who learn that failure isn't permanent that actually develop grit. They're the ones that can stick with stuff. When other more talented, more intelligent, more resourceful people attempt to do what they do, they can't because they just stick with it. And so I'd often say that to a situation like this, and again, I I have no idea who wrote that. um, It it definitely wasn't me, I promise. Um, I I would say that you're going to have to risk failing, and maybe it won't be so bad you've probably created an aversion to failure that's way worse than it actually is. And if you're ever going to be able to accomplish things, you're going to have to take risks. Because even the Bible says this twice, whatever is not of faith is sin. That's Romans 14.23, and then in Hebrews 1, uh, excuse me, 11.6, it says, without faith it's impossible to please God. And so whatever you do is going to have to be by faith and not by sight. That doesn't mean that there can't be intelligence and there can't be strategic planning around it but at the end of the day you don't know and if you are never willing to take a risk you are going to live the end of your life in regret i promise all right next question how do you compare or contrast the concept of grit with faith good question that's really a good question Um, I think that there's a lot of correlation or correspondence between those two. I think people of great faith are people that have a deep resolve about their convictions. In other words, as they've studied Scripture, as they've grown in their faith over the years and their experience, they have come to a point of resolute conviction that doesn't falter very often. It's not perfect by any stretch, but it doesn't give way to the whims that some of some of the faith that the rest of us have. And so it can look like grit. Strong faith can look like a person who refuses to quit. Now, having said everything I have about grit, sometimes you've got to know when to quit. You can't. There's a lot of misnomers, especially in the coaching environment today. When people tell you, follow your passion, that's nonsense. Some of your passions would destroy your life if you give in to them. What if a person has a passion to become, you know, a worse serial killer than Ted Bundy? Should he do that? Should you say, you need to be whatever you want to be? That's nonsense. That's the last thing we need in this, our society. And so when it comes down to being able to say, I'm going to do everything if I can, and if, I, if it fails, I'm going to be okay. But to admit failure is not the end. Oftentimes it just causes you to dust yourself off, stand up and figure out a different strategy and hit it again. Not just rerunning and retreading the same strategy over and over and over again. That is exactly what Einstein defined as insanity. Doing the same thing over and over the same way and expecting a different outcome. And that, what oftentimes we would relegate to grit. But the people that I, I believe that I've met that have the most grit, they're people that are willing to just continue and persist to develop new strategies, new ideas, new options, and they just refuse to give up. They, they're not retreading and just rerunning the same script over and over and over again. So I think there's a lot of similarities between faith and grit. Um, I, I think a strong faith has to look gritty at times. If it doesn't, I don't think it's as strong as it should be. All right. I was hoping that was the last one. Um, You said any positive change in our lives will not happen by accident, but will require intentional effort. I did. Um, How does that flow with Philippians 2, 12 and 13? Grace is power from God to do good things in us and for us. That's true, but it's not in a vacuum. In Philippians 2 and verse 12 and 13, it starts with a very kind of awkward, challenging phrase for some of you. It says, work out your salvation by fear and trembling. Most of you have heard a whole bucket load of verses. I did the best I can not to to cuss right there. Um, You've heard a whole bucket full of of, uh, sermons on not fearing God. Perfect love casts out all fear, right? Well, what is he saying there? Work out your salvation as if everything hung on. And he uses the word for in end of verse 12. He says, for is it not God that's at work in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure? That's not a vacuum. He's changing. I remember sitting in a Bible study with about 25 older women in it. It was a long time ago. And we, we were discussing, what does that mean for God to be at work in you to will according to his good pleasure? And I can remember after kind of kicking the can down the road about 10 minutes or so, this old woman raised her hand and She said it's God fixing your wanter. And that's perfect. I've never heard a better definition of that. I've never read a commentary that captures it quite the same way. He is saying work out your salvation by fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God that is making you have the right affections. And he's causing you to do them. That's not a vacuum. That's not let go, let God. That's not just kind of capitulating and and case sera, sera, That's Paul saying, I believe you're going to work your tail off because you know the same God I do. And he doesn't leave me alone. He makes me want what he want, wants me to want and he makes me to do what he wants me to do. That's a God that's at work in you. So that's not a vacuum at all. That uh, It's going to be Intentional. See, I think when when God really gets a hold of your heart and begins to change your affections, it might look like a a man who repents of being just a jackass as a husband to be able to say, in 2017, I am going to be the finest husband I can be. And he's going to catch himself a thousand times of of turning into that old man. But instead, he's going to persist in hanging on to it. And it honors God every time he stops himself. Remember a couple of weeks ago, James was using a word, I think it was functional. And it's common. When you start preaching, you get up here and never, you use the same vocabulary over and over and over. But during the sermon, he kept catching himself saying it. And he said functional about, you know, probably two-thirds through the sermon, and he goes, oh, that's what it's like. That's exactly what it's like. When God convicts you of some habit that you have even lost consciousness of when you start to really buckle down to commit to change. It's going to be just like that. It's like, oh, I can't believe I did that again. Have you ever learned a word? I remember a long time ago, there was this a wise old man that used to work with my, my dad, and I said, irregardless. He said, that's not a, that's not a word. And I said, what do you mean it's not a word? He said, that's not a word. And I looked it up, and it wasn't a word. And I remember, it took me six months to quit saying that. I still hear it. Every time somebody says it, you might as well just hit me with an anchor on the head. <laughs> but that's what it looks like. And so this is, this is very deliberate, intentional change. This is not wake up in the morning, you know, and everything is fine. The birds are chirping and it's 75 degrees. It's not like that. When God calls you to change, he will work in and through you to bring about the change. Those were great questions, by the way. All right, let's pray. Um, Zach's going to come back up, and we're going to take communion. What that simply means is that this is a moment in which it's probably the most communal part of the service because you're going to see people file down these aisles or go to the back stations, and basically what they're doing is taking a piece of broken bread that's gluten-free and dipping it in a joss of wine. Um, I don't know why that had to come in. Oh. Um, <laughs> So, and basically you're saying, this is my life. This broken bread is a body that was broken for me so that I wouldn't have to die. The blood that was shed cleanses me from all my sin. And when we do this, we're we're saying, sign me up. This is me. Sign me up. Now, if you're not a Christian, obviously you shouldn't do it because you're sending a message to the rest of us that, isn't consistent with what you believe to be true. But if you are a Christian, you don't have to be a member of L2. Participate in this with us. We believe that God attends his table. Let's pray. Father, I would ask that this sermon might resonate deeply with those of us that really do want to change. I know I can think of 10 different things that I want to be different in my life in 2015. I, I, I long to be a better husband, I long to be a better father and grandfather, a better son. A better brother, a better friend, a better mentor as I worked with James and Zach and as our team at the church begins to strive for, for goals and desired outcomes that we have. Father, let us learn from this that we, we shouldn't panic. We need to take our time and we need to make sure that the assessment of the situation is as accurate as it possibly can be and then we need to be resolute. We need to plan our feet and say, this is the way I'm going to I'm going to go. And so, Father, as we would think of that, obviously these these changes that are in my mind and heart are not the same of anyone else in this room or watching online, for that matter. But we want to be better people. If we didn't, I don't think we would be here. There's some people that are sitting in this room with broken hearts because they know how bad they are, and they want to be better. There's other people in this room that have hearts that are filled with gratitude, because they're not as bad as they used to be. But they still want to be better. And so, Father, help us to perceive a 2.0 of our life that is better than it's ever been before. Work within us to will and to work according to your good pleasure. Receive from our hands this worship, we pray. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.
0: You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.